tuned for Cover to Cover, an open book. Voice of Roma, Holtz, a benefit concert and dance party at the Sebastopol Community Center on Saturday, October 15th. With unforgettable Bulgarian Rom gypsy musicians, Ivo Papasov and Yuri Yunakov. According to the BBC, Papasov is the best artist of the year. The event starts at 7.30 and benefits the forgotten Romani victims of Kosovo war. For information, tickets, contact Voice of Roma at 707-823-7941 or at uh, www.voiceofroma.com. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is one minute past three o'clock. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, an open book. Good afternoon, and welcome to this Friday edition of Cover to Cover, open book. In the last few weeks, we have witnessed the devastation left behind throughout the South by the hurricanes Katrina and Rita. For the next half hour, you'll be hearing the second of a four-part reading produced by Susan Stone, where we see the resilience of the human spirit as we continue on a journey with Janie Crawford in Zora Neale Hurston's classic, Their Eyes Were Watching God. First published in 1937, this novel is a striking and timeless portrait of Janie Crawford's evolving sense of self through her three marriages. We met her in part one as a young troubled wife of Joe Starks. Her husband, who's the new mayor of Orange County, and has set up his wife, Janie, as the store manager and right hand of his many business ventures in town. As we witnessed last week, Joe has taken center stage, Janie has faded into the background, and this is where we find her as she struggles through coming to terms with her marriage. Our reader is Anna Lee Walker. From Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston The spirit of the marriage left the bedroom and took the living in the parlor. It was there to shake hands whenever company came to visit, but it never went back inside the bedroom again. So she put something in there to represent the spirit like a Virgin Mary image in a church. The bed was no longer a daisy field for her and Joe to play in. It was a place where she went and laid down when she was sleepy and tired. She wasn't pedal open anymore with him. She was 24 and 7 years married when she knew. She found that out one day when he slapped her in the face in the kitchen. It happened over one of those dinners that chasten all women sometimes. They plan and they fix and they do, and then some kitchen-dwelling fiend slips a scorchy, soggy, tasteless mess into their pots and pans. 
Janie was a good cook, and Joe had looked forward to his dinner as a refuge from other things. So when the bread didn't rise and the fish wasn't quite done at the bone and the rice was scorched, he slapped Janie until she had a ringing sound in her ears and told her about her brains before he stalked on back to the store. Janie stood where he left her for unmeasured time and thought. She stood there until something fell off the shelf inside of her. Then she went inside there to see what it was. What it was was her image of Jody tumbled down and shattered. But looking at it, she saw that it never was the flesh and blood figure of her dreams, just something she had grabbed up to drape her dreams over. In a way, she turned her back upon the image where it lay and looked further. She had no more blossomy openings dusting pollen over her man, neither any glistening young fruit where the petals used to be. She found that she had a host of thoughts that she had never expressed to him, and numerous emotions she had never let Jody know about. Things packed up and put away in parts of her heart where he could never find them. She was saving up feelings for some man she had never seen. She had an inside and an outside now, and suddenly she knew how not to mix them. She bathed and put on a fresh dress and headkerchief and went on to the store before Jody had time to send for her. That was a bow to the outside of things. The years took all the fight out of Jamie's face. For a while, she thought it was gone from her soul. No matter what Jody did, she said nothing. She had learned how to talk some and leave some. She was a rut in the road, plenty of life beneath the surface, but it was kept beaten down by the wheels. Sometimes she struck out to the future, imagining her life different from what it was, but mostly... She lived between her hat and her heels, with her emotional disturbances like shade patterns in the woods, come and gone with the sun. She got nothing from Jody except what money could buy, and she was giving away what she didn't value. Now and again, she thought of a country road at sunup and considered flight. To where? To what? Then, too, she considered Thirty-five is twice seventeen, and nothing was the same at all. Maybe he ain't nothing, she cautioned herself, but he is something in my mouth. He's got to be, else I ain't got nothing to live for. I'll lie and say he is. If I don't, life won't be nothing but a store and a house. She didn't read books, so she didn't know that she was... The world and the heaven boiled down to a drop, man attempting to climb to painless heights from his dunghill. Then one day she sat and watched the shadow of herself going about tending the store and prostrating itself before Jody, while all the time she herself sat under a shady tree with the wind blowing through her hair and her clothes, somebody near about making summertime out of lonesomeness. This was the first time it happened, but after a while, it got so common, she ceased to be surprised. It was like a drug. 
In a way, it was good because it reconciled her to things. She got so she received all things with the solidness of the earth, which soaks up urine and perfume with the same indifference. One day she noticed that Joe didn't sit down. He just stood up in front of a chair and fell in it. That made her look at him all over. Joe wasn't so young as he used to be. There was already something dead about him. He didn't rear back in his knees any longer. He squatted over his ankles when he walked. That stillness at the back of his neck, his prosperous-looking belly that used to thrust out and intimidate folks, sagged like a load suspended from his loins. It didn't seem to be a part of him anymore. Eyes a little absent, too. Jody must have noticed it, too. Maybe he had seen it long before Jamie did and had been fearing for her to see because he began to talk about her age all the time as if he didn't want her to stay young while he grew old. It was always, you ought to throw something over your shoulder before you go outside. You ain't no young pullet no more. You's an old hen now. For the first time, she could see a man's head naked of its skull. She saw the cunning thoughts race in and out through the caves and promontories of his mind long before they darted out of the tunnel of his mouth. She saw he was hurting inside, so she let it pass without talking. She just measured out a little time for him and set it aside to wait. It got to be terrible in the store. The more his back ached and his muscles dissolved into fat and the fat melted off his bones, the more fractious he became with Janie especially in the store. The more people in there, the more ridicule he poured over her body to point attention away from his own. So one day, Steve Mixon wanted some chewing tobacco and Janie cut it wrong. She hated that tobacco knife anyway. It worked very stiff. She fumbled with the thing and cut away from the mark. Mixon didn't mind. He held it up for a joke to tease Janie a little. Look here, mere brother. What your wife done took and done. It was cut comical, so everybody laughed at it. A woman and a knife, no kind of knife, don't belong together. There was some more good-natured laughter at the expense of women. Jody didn't laugh. He hurried across from the post office side and took the plug of tobacco away from Mixon and cut it again. Cut it exactly on the mark and glared at Janie. Ah, oh, God almighty. A woman stay round a store till she get old as Methuselah and still can't cut a little thing like a plug of tobacco. Don't stand there rolling your eye, your eyes popping at me with your rump hanging knitted to your knees. A pig laugh started off in the store, but people got to thinking and stopped. It was funny if you looked at it right quick, but it got pitiful if you thought about it a while. It was like somebody snatched off part of a woman's clothes while she wasn't looking and the streets were crowded. Then, too, Janie took the middle of the floor to talk right into Jody's face, and that was something that hadn't been done before. Stop mixing up my doing with my looks, Jody. When you gets through telling me how to cut a plug of tobacco, then you can tell me whether my behind is on straight or not. Oh, what's that you say, Janie? You, you must be out of your head. No. I ain't out of my head, neither. You must be talking any such language as that.
You the one started talking under people's clothes, not me. What's the matter with you, no how? You ain't no young girl to be getting all insulted about your looks. You ain't no young courting gal. You's an old woman, nearly 40. Yeah, I'm nearly 40, and you's already 50. How come you can't talk about that sometime instead of always pointing at me? Tain't no use in getting all mad, Janie, cause I mentioned you ain't no young gal no more. Nobody in here ain't looking for no wife out of you, old as you is. <laughs> Talking about me looking old, when you pull down your britches, you look like the change of life. Great God from Zion, Sam Watson gasped. You really playing a dozen tonight. What's that you said? Joe challenged, hoping his ears had fooled him. You heard her. You ain't blind, Walter taunted. I'd rather be shot with tax than to hear that bout myself, Lejumoge commensurated. Then Joe Starks realized all the meaning, and his vanity bled like a flood. Janie had robbed him of his illusion of irresistible maleness that all men cherish, which was terrible. The thing that Saul's daughter had done to David. But Janie had done worse. She had cast down his empty armor before men, and they had laughed, would keep on laughing. When he paraded his possessions hereafter, they would not consider the two together. They'd look with envy at the things and pity the man that owned them. When he sat in judgment, it would be the same. Good-for-nothings like Dave and Lum and Jim wouldn't change place with him. For what can excuse a man in the eyes of other men for lack of strength? Raggedy behind, skirts of sixteen and seventeen would be giving him their merciless pity out of their eyes while their mouths said something humble. There was nothing to do in life anymore. Ambition was useless, and the cruel deceit of Janie, making all that show of humbleness and scorning him all the time, laughing at him, and now putting the town up to do the same. Joe Starks didn't know the words for all this, but he knew the feeling. So he struck Jamie with all his might and drove her from the store. After that night, Jody moved his things and slept in a room downstairs. He didn't really hate Janie, but he wanted her to think so. He had crawled off to lick his wounds. They didn't talk much around the store either. Anybody that didn't know would have thought that things had blown over. It looked so quiet and peaceful around. But the stillness was a sleep of swords. So new thoughts had to be thought and new words said. She didn't want to live like that. Why must Joe be so mad with her for making him look small when he did it to her all the time? Had been doing it for years. Well, if she must eat out of a long-handled spoon, she must. Jody might get over his mad spell any time at all and begin to act like somebody toward her. Then, too, she noticed how baggy Joe was getting all over, like bags hanging from an ironing board. A little sack hung from the corner of his eyes and rested on his cheekbones. A loose-filled bag of feathers hung from his ears and rested on his neck beneath his chin. A sack of flabby something hung from his loins and rested on his thighs when he sat down. But even these things were running down like candle grease as time moved on. 
He made new alliances, too. People he never bothered with one way or another now seemed to have his ear. He had always been scornful of root doctors and all their kind, but now she saw a faker from over around Altamont Springs hanging around the place almost daily, always talking in low tones when she came near, a hush to altogether. She didn't know that he was driven by a desperate hope to appear the old-time body in her sight. She was sorry about the root doctor because she feared that Joe was depending on the scoundrel to make him well when what he needed was a doctor, and a good one. She was worried about his not eating his meals till she found out he was having old Lady Davis to cook for him. She knew that she was a much better cook than the old woman and cleaner about her kitchen. So she bought a beef bone and made him some soup. No, thank you, he told her shortly. I'm having a hard enough time trying to get well as it is. She was stunned at first and hurt afterwards. So she went straight to her bosom friend, Phoebe Watson, and told her about it. I'd rather be dead than for Jody to think I'm hurting him, she sobbed to Phoebe. I ain't always been too pleasant, cause you know how Joe worships the works of his own hand, but God in heaven knows I wouldn't do a thing to hurt nobody. It's too underhand and mean. Janie, I thought maybe the thing would die down and you would never know nothing about it, but it's been singing around here ever since the big fuss in the store that Joe was fixed and you was the one that did it. Phoebe, for the longest time I've been feeling like that something set for steel bait, but, but this is, oh, Phoebe, what can I do? To think I've been with Jody 20 years and just now got to bear the name of poisoning him. It's about to kill me, Phoebe. Sorrow dogged by sorrow is in my heart. She cried often in the weeks that followed. Joe got too weak to look after things and took to his bed, but he relentlessly refused to admit her to his sick room. This one and that one came into her house with covered plates of broth and other sick room dishes without taking the least notice of her as Joe's wife, people who never had known what it was to enter the gates of the mayor's yard unless they were there to do some menial job, now paraded in and out as his confidence. Janie had Sam Watson to bring her the news from the sick room, and when he told her how things were going, she had him bring a doctor from Orlando without giving Joe a chance to refuse and without saying she sent for him. Just a matter of time, the doctor told her. When a man's kidneys stop working altogether, there is no way for him to live. He needed medical attention two years ago. Too late now. So... Janie began to think of death. Death, that strange being with the huge square toes who lived way in the west, the great one who lived in the straight house like a platform without sides to it and without a roof. What need has death for a cover? And what winds can blow against him? He stands in his high house that overlooks the world, stands watchful and motionless all day with his sword drawn back, waiting for the messenger to bid him come. She got up that morning with a firm determination to go in there and have a good talk with Jody. But she sat a long time with the walls creeping in on her. 
four walls squeezing her breath out. Fear lest he depart while she sat trembling upstairs nerved her, and she was inside the room before she caught her breath. She didn't make a cheerful, casual start that she had thought out. Something stood like an oxen's foot on her tongue. And then, too, Jody, no, Joe, gave her a ferocious look, a look with all the unthinkable coldness of outer space. She must talk to a man who was ten immensities away. He was lying on his side facing the door like he was expecting somebody or something, a sort of changing look on his face, weak-looking but sharp-pointed about the eyes. Through the thin counterpane, she could see what was left of his belly huddled before him on the bed like some helpless thing seeking shelter. The half-washed bedclothes hurt her pride for Jody. He had always been so clean. What you doing in here, Janie? Come to see about you and how you was making out. He gave a deep growling sound like a hog dying down in the swamp and trying to drive off disturbance. I come in here to get shit of you, but look like tain't doing me no good. Gone out. I needs my rest. No, Jody. I come in here to talk with you, and I'm going to do it. It's for both of our sakes I'm talking. He gave another ground grumble and eased over on his back. Jody, maybe I ain't been such a good wife to you. But Jody, that's cause you ain't got the right feeling for nobody. Much as I done for you, holding me up to scorn, no sympathy. No, Jody, it wasn't because I didn't have no sympathy. I had a lavish of that. I just didn't never get no chance to use none of it. You wouldn't let me. That's right. Blame everything on me. I wouldn't let you show no feeling. When, Janie, that's all I ever wanted or desired, now you come blaming me. Taint that, Jody. I ain't here to blame nobody. I'm just trying to make you know what kind of person I is before it's too late. Too, too late, he whispered. His eyes buckled in a vacant mouth terror, and she saw the awful surprise in his face and answered it. A deep sob came out of Jody's weak frame. Janie, Janie, don't tell me I got to die. And I ain't used to thinking about it. Tain't really no need of you dying, Jody, if you had uh, the doctor, but... It didn't do you no good to bring that up now. That's just what I wants to say, Jody. You wouldn't listen. You done lived with me for 20 years and you don't have no me at all. And you could have, but you were so busy worshiping the works of your own hand and cuffing folks around in their mind till you didn't see a whole heap of things you could have. Leave here, Janie. Don't come here. I knowed you wasn't going to listen to me. It changes everything, but nothing don't change you, not even death. But I ain't going out of here, and I ain't going to hush. No, you're going to listen to me one time before you die. Have your all your life trampled and mashed down and then die rather than to let yourself hear about it. Listen, Jody, you ain't the Jody I run off down the road with. 
juice what's left after he died. I run off to keep house with you in a wonderful way. And you wasn't satisfied with me the way I was. No. My own mind had to be squeezed and crowded out to make room for your ones in me. Shut up. I wish thunder and lightning would kill you. I knows it. And now you got to die for to find out that you got to pacify somebody beside yourself if you want any love and any sympathy in the world. You ain't tried to pacify nobody but yourself. Too busy listening to your own big voice. All this bowing down, all this disobedience in your voice, that ain't what I rushed off the road to find out about you. A sound of strife in Jody's throat, but his eyes stared unwillingly into a corner of the room, so Janie knew the futile fight was not with her. The icy sword of the square-toed one had cut off his breath and left his hands in a pose of agonizing protest. Janie gave them peace on his breast. Then she studied his dead face for a long time. This sitting in the ruling chair has been hard on Jody, she murmured out loud. She was full of pity for the first time in years. Jody had been hard on her and others, but life had mishandled him too. Poor Joe. Maybe if she had known some other way to try, she might have made his face different. But what that other way could be, she had no idea. She thought back and forth about what had happened in the making of a voice out of a man, then thought about herself. Years ago, she had told her girl self to wait for her in the looking glass. It had been a long time since she had remembered. Perhaps she'd better look. She had went over to the dresser and looked hard at her skin and features. The young girl was gone, but a handsome woman had taken her place. She tore off the kerchief from her head and let her plentiful hair let it down. The weight, the length, the glory was there. She took careful stock of herself, then combed her hair and tied it back up again. Then she starched and ironed her face, forming it into just what people wanted to see, and opened up the window and cried, Come here, people. Jody is dead. My husband is gone from me. I've been reading excerpts from Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. I am Anna Lee Walker.
You've been listening to part two of a four-part reading of Zora Neale Hurston's acclaimed novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Our reader is Anna Lee Walker. This program was engineered in the KPFA studios by Tanisha Jackson and produced by Susan Stone. Join us next week when as part of our special programming for our fall fun drive, we'll be acknowledging the recent anniversary of How, the renowned poem by Allen Ginsberg. That's next week here on Cover to Cover, Open Book. If you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to call 510-848-6767, extension 212. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I'm Amelia Gonzalez, thanking you for listening. America's few, alarmingly few, great investigative reporters, Seymour Hirsch, will present the Mario Savio Memorial Lecture on October 27th, a Thursday at 7.30 p.m. in Poly Ballroom in the Student Union Building on the UC Berkeley campus. Hirsch, a Pulitzer Prize winner whose work appears regularly in The New Yorker, titles this lecture, Chain of Command, The Road from 9-11 to Abu Ghraib. Admission is free. Poly Ballroom is wheelchair accessible. Full information on the web at savio.org. That's S-A-V-I-O dot org. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF.